Good morning. It is a great blessing and joy to be here. Um, I, I praise God for this group of people, uh, for the encouragement that we're able to come together to build one another up, uh, to share in our common love for Him, uh, and praise for His name. Uh, for the last quarter, I've been teaching the teenage class through the book of uh, books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, and I've really been blown away by some of the powerful lessons that those books have for us today. Um, and one of the passages that I keep coming back to is this passage that we just read in Zechariah chapter 4. Um, and the exhortation, uh, specifically in verse 10, that mentions those who are despising the day of small things. Um, and I think there are some lessons here that may be especially helpful uh, for us, for this group at, at Eastside, uh, that I hope will be an encouragement to you as it has been to me. And perhaps what would be most helpful is to start by talking about, well, what, what's the context here? What is he talking about here in Zechariah when he mentions the day of small things? Um, and we'll come back to this vision in Zechariah 4 a little bit later to talk about it in more detail, but um, we'll start with some historical context of Haggai and Zechariah. Um, Haggai and Zechariah are perhaps among the easiest prophets in the Old Testament to date, exactly. Uh, they uh, date their prophecies very precisely um, to uh, specifically the second year of King Darius. Uh, and they're both mentioned in the historical record of the book of Ezra. In Ezra uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, uh, it tells us when the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, uh, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So you hear this, see here, this is during the return from captivity. Um, the first return being led by Zerubbabel and, and Joshua um, as they go to rebuild the temple. Uh, just to give a little bit of historical background, in about 538 BC, uh, the first year of King Cyrus, or at least the first year that he reigned over the territory of Babylon, uh, we see the remnant is finally allowed to return. As God promised they would be able to, God um, causes Cyrus to be gracious to uh, the, the Israelites in captivity, uh, allowing them to return. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we see they start by rebuilding the altar there in Jerusalem, and they celebrate the Feast of Booths uh, when they first return. But uh, a year later, about six months later, in 537 BC, BC, we see that they begin laying the foundation of the temple. Uh, and I want to just for a moment look at uh, Ezra chapter 3, Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 through 13, because I think this might in particular help us understand this day of small things that Zechariah is talking about. Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, 
wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So this is a, a great day of rejoicing. Um, God has finally allowed his people to return. They are able to rebuild the temple. But in the midst of that rejoicing, there's also great sorrow. Here, many uh, of the older men who had seen the old temple that was built during the time of Solomon, during the heyday of Israel, when they had you know, the, the greatest prosperity and riches available to them, the greatest manpower, and now they're rebuilding this temple and they look at the foundations and it doesn't look like anything in comparison with what Solomon what was able to build. Um, and so we see as we read on in Ezra chapter 4 that they start on top of this discouragement of, of seeing how small it is in comparison. They, they start receiving a lot of opposition from the people of the land. And Ezra 4 kind of uh, chronicles a, a lot of different opposition throughout time that they faced. And so they stopped building. They stopped building there in 537 because of the opposition and discouragement. And they don't restart building until 520 BC, nearly 18 years later, uh, at the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. That's exactly what Haggai and Zechariah are there for. They're telling these people, listen, you need to get back to rebuilding the temple. As small as it seemed, as discouraging as it was, as much opposition as you were facing, you need to return to the Lord, to put him first, uh, to get to work. And Haggai is the first to kind of speak up, rallying the people back to this rebuilding of the temple. If you look in Haggai, uh, Haggai and Zechariah are at the very end of your New Testament. By the way, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, and Haggai chapter 2, in verse 3, he makes reference to this. He says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? That's exactly what we read back in, in Ezra chapter 3, right? Now it's 18 years later, but Haggai is recognizing, listen, I understand. You, you, those who saw it in its former glory, look at it now, it doesn't look like anything. Uh, he's going to have a message to those people, but he's, he's recognizing this day of small things. That this, this wasn't as glorious and as great and as powerful as they were hoping uh, it, it would be. And we can see in the context of Haggai that, in fact, the people at this time are going through a lot of economic difficulty. Um, the very first thing that Haggai says back in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2, says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It says, they're saying it's not the right time. Listen, we, we, we will rebuild, but, but we're not there yet. T today is not the right day. Why? Well, if, if you look a little further, Haggai chapter 1 and verse 6, uh, Haggai says, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Does that sound like a, a great time to get started on this grand building project. <laughs> Here, they're, they're going through a time, largely because they're not putting the Lord first, of, of economic hardship. They're struggling to put their manpower into putting food on their own tables, let alone putting the manpower into build, rebuilding the temple. And so they're saying it's, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower. Let, let's, let's try to get through this time of economic hardship, and then maybe we can can build the temple. What Haggai is going to say is, no, it is the time to build. 
Stop worrying about your houses. Worry about the house of the Lord. That's where your focus needs to be. But, but do you understand the context here? You know, they're probably thinking, how can we generate the kind of manpower and resources for a grand and glorious building project when we're struggling to put food on our own tables? Whatever we're able to scrounge up together for the temple, it's not going to be anything compared to the temple of the days of Solomon. Uh, the most prosperous time of Israelite history. It's not going to be anything compared to the grand and, and, and glorious uh, pagan temples in the land of Babylon or the land of Persia from which we've come. Can, can you sympathize with their perspective here? Do you think maybe we, we would be tempted to feel that way too? You know, a philosophy that I've tried to live by in my work um, is if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. I remember that that was uh, something that um, some of the first conversations that I had with, with people here at, at Eastside before we moved here, uh, kind of sharing that that's the way that I try to approach the work. But, but I tell you that there is a downside to thinking that way. And sometimes the downside is if I can't do it well, then I might as well not do it. Sometimes it keeps us from doing what we need to be doing. And yes, it's, it's good that we should be pursuing excellence, doing the best that we can, but sometimes that, that can keep us from, from putting the effort, putting the energy where it needs to be put because we don't feel like we're going to do it effectively. Well, what is God's message to this discouraged and demoralized remnant? Don't despise the day of small things. I, I want to look at three ideas from Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that I think will help us in our temptation to despise the day of small things. Um, first of all, we need to look at the past with gratitude. You recognize God had just, against all earthly expectation, allowed his people to return from 70 years in exile in Babylon. Uh, they had even been sent out with gifts of silver and gold uh, and, and other valuables from the people of the land. Um, Cyrus had even dug back up the, the vessels that were used in the services of the temple and given those back to the people of Israel. Uh, and then God, without any guard, without any uh, you know, hu human uh, bodyguard to, to be with them, God had seen them safely all the way back in their journey to the land. God had been very good to them. There was a lot to rejoice in, but... As they stood among the devastation and ruins of what used to be a glorious temple, with a mere remnant of what used to be a great and powerful nation, it was hard not to let sorrow and discouragement overshadow everything else. But to despise the day of small things was really to despise the grace and goodness and love of the Lord. He's the one who gave them all those things. And to despise his gifts uh, was not to have the right heart towards the Lord. Uh, and I think we see this concept a, a little more clearly in the prophesy, uh, prophecy of Malachi. If you want to turn to Malachi chapter 1, Malachi is a little bit later historically. He's uh, probably prophesying a little bit more during the time of Nehemiah when they're rebuilding the, the walls around Jerusalem at this point. But we're going to see some similar concepts. Malachi chapter 1, read with me the first four verses of Malachi. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Let's stop there for a moment. Here, God 
God says, I have loved you. And, and Israel's response is, really? How have you loved us? Why, why, why do you think, in context, why do you think they might be tempted to feel like God hasn't, hasn't shown his love to them? Well, Jerusalem is in ruins, right? The, the nation is nothing like it used to be. The temple is nothing like it used to be. The temple was rebuilt by Malachi's time, but still it was nothing compared to Solomon's temple. And so they're tempted in their discouragement to think, well, but, but have you really loved us? What, what's God's answer? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What, what, what is God's answer to their questioning his love for them in this time of discouragement? He says, really, I haven't loved you? Well, well, take a good, hard look at Esau, your brother. Look, look at the Edomites. See where they are. And you know what? That's where you deserve to be. God had, had as well allowed the Edomites to be taken into captivity in Babylon, but though Edom said, we're going to return and we're going to rebuild, God says, no, you're not. No, you're not going to be a nation. You're never going to be a nation again. There's no nation of Edom today, right? God says, you, you, you despise my love. You despise the day of small things. Well, take a good, hard look at where you deserve to be. Sometimes we need to stop and, and take some time, instead of running over in our minds again and again the discouragements that we feel and the difficulties and the loss, we need to take some time to remember all that God has given us more than what we deserve. And by the way, that's everything that he's given us, right? There's nothing that he's given us that we deserve. When we recognize where it is we deserve to be, and then we see the gifts, and instead of despising the small things, let's start counting up all of those small things. I, I think about Job. When Job goes through a great time of a trial and hardship and discouragement, what, what's Job's heart? How does he express it here? In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, later on, in response to his wife, he says, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Brethren, for every the Lord has taken away, there is in our lives, that's evidence of the fact that God first gave something to us, right? And so sometimes we, we get so caught up in thinking about the discouragements and thinking about the loss, and, and yet, do, do we not remember that what it is that's being taken away is something that he first gave? We need to choose, rather, to focus our minds on gratitude, to cultivate grateful hearts. Brother, we need to cultivate grateful hearts. Hearts that count our blessings and not our discouragement. We need eyes that see God's goodness shining through every trial, that recognize any loss we feel as evidence of some blessing that was first given to us by God. But how easy is it for us to forget all of that? How quickly we forget the blessings, right? The things that feel, make us feel empty, the things that leave us discouraged, those stick with us quite a while. 
But with the blessings, many times we're very quick to forget those. I, I think about in the days of Exodus. Remember in Exodus 14 and 15. Uh, Exodus 14 and 15, we read one of the, the most magnificent miracles that God ever works for his people. He parts the waters of the Red Sea to lead them out of bondage in Egypt. And chapter 15 is a record of the song that they sing and praise to the Lord for this demonstration of his power and his grace towards his people. But right after that song finishes in chapter 15, do you know what the next thing that it says? Starting in verse 22, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And it gets worse from there. How long did it take for them to forget the waters of the Red Sea? Right? Three days with no water. And when we do find water, guess what? You can't drink it. And all of a sudden, all the praise of Exodus 15, of what God had done, his great power, his great grace towards his people, well, you know, that doesn't help us right now in what we're going through. How quick are we to forget our blessings? And how slow are we to forget our discouragements sometimes? You know, like in, in the life of uh, Elijah, we'll talk about this more a little bit later, but you remember he has his great mountaintop moment when he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal and God sends fire down upon the altar. It's so, such a powerful um, experience, such a powerful thing to see, and yet nothing changes. There's not some big revival. Elijah gets a death threat and he's running for his life. And the next thing that we know, he's in a lonely cave, despairing of life itself. I think many times that's, that's our experience, right? Um, the, the, the lonely caves seem like they last forever. The discouragements stick with us, but the mountaintop moments, it doesn't take long until we've forgotten that completely. We, we need to rewire our hearts, rewire our brains to meditate and value and, and, and dwell upon the good things that God has given us. Yes, even all the small things. Instead of counting our discouragements, instead of letting them run over our minds again and again and again, we need to count our blessings. We need to meditate on those, choose to focus on the, the things of, of the Spirit. You know, the, thinking that way, meditating on our discouragements, is really the way of the flesh. That, that's, that's our fleshly Tendency, our fleshly pull. Um, our flesh is a broken cistern that can hold no water. It's going to leave us empty. But God's Spirit is a fountain of living waters that never runs dry. And so we need, in the Spirit, rather, to, to choose to let the good things God has given us run over in our minds again and again and again. Because for every the Lord has taken away that Satan throws at us, there is a corresponding the Lord has given that we can choose to rejoice in instead. Don't despise the day of small things. Count every small thing that God has given until you are overwhelmed with the abundance of God's grace and God's goodness in your life. Carry that with you 
through the lonely caves, the dark valleys, through uh, standing in the rubble of, of the temple with a, a small remnant. But along with that, we need to look to the present with a spiritual focus. And this really gets to the heart of Zechariah's vision in Zechariah 4 that Jonathan read for us a moment ago. Uh, just to recount this vision, uh, Zechariah sees in this, this night of eight visions, actually, he, he sees here in chapter 4 a golden lampstand standing there. And next to this lampstand, there's two olive trees uh, right beside it. And instead of the normal method of having to pick the olives, crush them, harvest the oil, store it, maybe ship it, sell it, uh, and then use it to light the lamp. What we see happening here is that there's spouts coming into this lamp straight from the olive tree themselves. Without any human intervention, the oil of those trees is, is fueling the, the fires of, of this lamp. And when uh, the angel is asked about this by Zechariah, it says in Zechariah 4 and verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, in terms of manpower, in terms of material resources and architectural potential, Israel's lamp was burning pretty low at this point in history. By human standards, there wasn't a very bright and glorious future for the building project that they were undertaking. But God's message to Zerubbabel is that's not what it's about. What's important was not how this physical structure compared to the beauty of Solomon's temple. What was important is not how this, this structure compared to the pagan temples that they had seen in the land of Babylon from which they came. What was important was that God's spirit was with them, that God was dwelling with his people. And Zechariah 4 and verse 10 says, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Do you see what he's saying there? From a human perspective, from fleshly eyes, this is a day of small things. This doesn't look very impressive. But what God says is, stop looking through your eyes and take a moment to look through my eyes. My eyes take great joy in what's happening here. Even though it doesn't look impressive, even though it doesn't look grand and glorious from a human perspective, what's most important is what I see going on in my relationship with you. Right? It's kind of like the widow's two mites. Right? That didn't look very impressive when those two little coins plunked into the treasury. Right? didn't look impressive like the, the other rich people bringing all of, of their treasures in. And yet, Jesus says, that right there, that's what's important. That's what I take great joy in. God would rather have a small remnant of faithful, sincere, passionate servants than a grand nation of people who are going through the outward motions of worship and not giving them his heart, uh, giving him their hearts. What is impressive to the eyes of men is not what is valuable and impressive to the eyes of God. And so, brethren, we need to learn to see differently. 
We need to, to learn to think differently than the world around us. To, to value the things that God values. Our relationship with him, his spirit dwelling within us. Not what the world values. Focus not on how impressive our service is. But to focus on how impressive our God is. That's where the focus is. Look, look in Haggai chapter 2. We read part of this earlier, but, but I want you to notice Haggai's statement along these same lines. Not by power, uh, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Zechariah. Haggai in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtuel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. What's the focus? It says, take courage. Zerubbabel, Joshua, remnant, take courage. Why? Because I'm with you. Because I'm here. Because just like the days of the Exodus, my spirit dwells among you. It doesn't matter if there's no temple at all. It doesn't matter if there's just a tent or if there's a pile of rubble. If God is there, that's what's important. And we can take courage and we can praise the Lord because he's present. Where is our focus? What are we prioritizing? Are we looking through the eyes of Almighty God? Are we seeing what he sees? Or are we looking through the eyes of flesh, seeing the way that the world sees? We talked uh, a moment ago about Elijah's discouragement. And I think God, how God addresses Elijah's discouragement in 1 Kings 19 really emphasizes the same point. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Uh, look with me back in, in 1 Kings 19. In just a moment, we'll read there starting in verse 9. But, but you remember the story, as we said before, uh, Elijah has this mountaintop moment with the prophets of Baal um, where God sends down fire from above. Uh, whereas the, the prophets of Baal cry out all day, they can't get any answer from Baal, and yet Elijah drenches the altar with, with 12 uh, barrels of water, and yet with a simple prayer, God answers and sends fire down from above and, and leaves uh, a smoldering crater in the place of the altar. Uh, so we see the great power of God, and yet what happens? There's no spiritual revival. As far as Elijah can see, nobody changes. In fact, it just makes Jezebel that much more angry. She threatens uh, Elijah's life. He's on the run, um, trying to preserve his own life. And so God sends an angel to Elijah and, and provides him the sustenance that he needs for this great journey. I, I don't think Elijah is running away um, against the Lord's will here. No, in fact, uh, God says the journey is too great for you. 
uh, and he gives him food to help him on this journey. So this is all part of God's encouragement, part of God's counseling plan for Elijah. He, he has him take this long journey all the way down to Mount Sinai. And if you read with me in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 9, it says, Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth. And stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle Blowing, and that's where we'll see God again speaks to Elijah. What is this all about? What's going on here? God, God sends Elijah on this journey all the way down to Mount Sinai. He, he gives him the sustenance that he needs um, to, to lead him here. And then he asks him, why are you here, Elijah? I, I get almost the picture of you know, Elijah coming into a psychiatrist's office and saying, okay, well, what, what, what brings you in today, right? Um, he's, he's getting Elijah to think through what's going on in his life. And then what's God's answer? It says God passes by. And, and Elijah sees some things. He experiences some things here. Uh, there's, there's a great whirlwind, an, an earthquake, a fire. But, but we're told God wasn't in those things. God wasn't in the whirlwind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. It's then and a gentle blowing or a still small voice that God's message finally comes through. Think about what Elijah has experienced here. What is God communicating to him? You know, does God work through the whirlwind sometimes? Sometimes. Does, it, does he work through the earthquake and the fire? That, that's what God had done there on Mount Sinai before, where Elijah now was. But the primary message here is, listen, Elijah, That's not always how it works. Elijah thought it was going to be in this grand mountaintop moment that God was going to accomplish his purpose, that he was going to see this this great revival in Israel, and he sees nothing. Nothing changes. Sometimes the working of God in our lives is, is in ways that is barely even perceptible to human eyes and human ears. God's work is not always accomplished in the mountaintop moments. In fact, more often than not, it's accomplished in deep, dark valleys and in lonely caves. But if God is there, that's what's most important. And if God is there, then there should be nowhere else we'd rather be. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by whirlwind, not by fire, not by earthquake, but by my spirit. When I'm there, that's what's most important. And thirdly, we need to look at the future with faith 
and hope. The lonely cave, the valley of the shadow of death, the weak and weary remnant among temple ruins is not where our story ends. Where God's spirit is, there is always the light of hope. And much of Haggai and Zechariah's prophecies focus on the future hope and the future glory uh, that Israel can look forward to, even in the midst of these these days of small things. Look look with me in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, we read verses 1 through 5 here, where he encourages them, Take courage, for I am with you. My spirit is abiding in your midst. And then verse 6 of Haggai chapter 2, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai just finished saying, you know, how how does the temple look to you guys? When you compare it with what what you saw in the past, what what you've seen around you, does it not seem like nothing? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm with you. And because I'm with you, a day is going to come where the latter glory is going to be greater than the former. How is that possible? How is it possible that the glory is ever going to be anything compared to what it was during the days of Solomon? That's the greatest and most prosperous time Israel had ever seen. You're you're saying we're going to have that again? It sure doesn't look like it. In the midst of this, God says, listen, the gold is mine. The silver is mine. I... The, the glory of this house is not what, about what you bring to it. I don't need the gold. I don't need the silver. I already have it. I'll tell you what's going to bring glory. I'm going to bring glory to this temple. And the glory is not by what you give to it. It's by what I'm going to give from my dwelling here. In this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. You want to know why the the latter glory is greater than the former? Because of peace on earth and goodwill toward man. Because God was going to bring great blessing through his dwelling with his people, right? And that's not measured by what we see with human eyes, right? What it's about is peace with God, with a restoration of relationship with our creator, and a restoration of a relationship with all of his children, that we get to be part of the eternal family of God. And so as thankful as we can be looking back to God's gifts in the past, they are completely eclipsed by the blessings God has in store for the faithful in the future. As C.S. Lewis is often quoted saying, for the Christian there are always far, far better things ahead than any that we leave behind. And this is the same message that Zechariah has for the people. Uh, We could see this in many different places, but look in Zechariah chapter 8. In Zechariah chapter 8, this is two years into the rebuilding project. Um, It takes about four years, 516, when they finally complete it. But two years into the rebuilding of the temple, uh, some people come to Zechariah and they say, we've been fasting in in the fifth month. 
uh, commemorating the destruction of the temple all these years. Um, sh- should we stop fasting? Should we stop mourning over the destruction of the temple now? We're, we're making some progress. Uh, is it time to, to stop mourning? Uh, and Zechariah has a lot of different things to say, but I want you to notice what he says starting in verse 18. Says, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth month will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. So love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? They say, you know, we're making some progress on the temple. Is it, is it safe to stop mourning over its destruction now? And Zechariah's ultimate answer is, listen, God isn't just going to bring an end to your mourning. He's going to replace it with feasting and rejoicing. He isn't just going to take away your reproach among the nations. He's going to make you ambassadors of his glory to all the earth. And, And ten men will come and grab onto your garments. Why? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. You see that in verse 23? Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's what brings the glory. Not the the human potential, not, not the architectural glory of this temple. God is with you. That's where the glory is. And so that that picture in verse 21 of many saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts and I'll I'll go as well. That's a picture of of who we're supposed to be. We as spiritual Israel are part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is our hope that's being talked about. That we can have fellowship with the Lord, that we can have God's spirit dwelling within us as his temple. That the latter glory of of this restored relationship, this peace with God, is greater than anything that the physical glory of the Old Covenant had to offer. That's our hope. That's who we are. Do we have that hope? Do we live that kind of hope? You know, if we have genuine faith in God's promises for the future, it's going to make a profound difference in how we approach present hardships and difficulties. It's going to make a profound difference in how we approach the day of small things. Remember Elijah? He thought that it was the end of his road, that he might as well die. He alone was left, and there was no hope for revival yet ahead of him. But when the still small voice came in 1 Kings 19, what what was its message? What, What was God's message? If you look back, At 1 Kings 19, starting verse 15, God says, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king of Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
Elijah is saying, this is it. It's over. You know, we had our mountaintop moment. There was nothing. I'm the last one. I'm all alone. I might as well just give up and die. God says, no, you don't understand. I'm not done. Not even close. The the anointing oil of God's spirit still has a whole lot more work for you to accomplish. You're not alone. You're not the only one. And there will be generation after generation of my people to come even after you're dead and gone. You know, in the moment, our hardships and our difficulties seem so big and so overwhelming to us. And yet, they're just one small piece in the grand mosaic of of God's masterpiece. And that's what it's about. It's not just about us. We need to see beyond our present discouragement to see the bigger picture. God is painting an eternal masterpiece. And our trials that seem so big and overwhelming in this moment, they are just one small piece of that masterpiece. We need to trust in the potter's hands and get to work. He knows what he's doing, and he's not done with us. If we have this faith and this hope in the future, then we're going to get to work. We're going to be thankful for the the time in the cave with the Lord to, to be reminded of what God has done, what God is doing, and what we have to look forward to in the future. But then we're going to take action. And we're going to start building. I, I want to look at, at one last passage together. As we think about this concept of faith and hope, perhaps there's no better place to go than Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the chapter on faith. But I, I want you to notice something at the very end of this chapter. There's kind of two distinct categories of people that the Hebrew writer mentions as he closes this chapter on faith. Those who accomplished great things and those who suffered great things. Look starting in verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. People accomplished great things. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They suffered great things. What's the lesson? What's the application for us? Read in verse 39. It says, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What, what are we told so that we might not grow weary and lose heart, so that we might not despise the day of small things? As you see all those people that, that accomplished great things, that suffered great things, and yet walked by faith, you know, those ones that accomplished great things, was that their reward? Did, did, they, did they receive the promises? No. No, even when they accomplished great things, they were still looking forward to the end of their race, right? And so whatever it is that we experience in this life, whether we're living during the days of, of a Solomon or a David and we see great things accomplished, whether we're living in the days of a Zerubbabel and a, and a Joshua uh, and see great discouragements and difficulties, that's not what it's about. That's, that's part of our race, right? And, and the promises aren't primarily about what it is we're going to experience in that race. No, it's about what's laid up for us at the end of that race. And so we need to stop focusing on the flesh, lay aside all the things of this world that that tear us down, that keep us from fixing our eyes on Jesus. We need to run with endurance because the things that lie ahead of us for the faithful Christian will always be so much greater than any that we leave behind. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Right? Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard um, because it's so tempting to allow the flesh to blind us, to get us to think about our current discouragement, our current hardship, that things don't look the way that we think they should. And we take our eyes off of all the good that God has done for us of what's most important about our relationship with him, our fellowship with him, his spirit dwelling with us. And we don't continue in faith for the hope that is set before us. Will we despise the day of small things? Or will we praise God for the day of small things? Because he has been good to us in more ways than we could ever count. Because we have fellowship with him. And when he is with us, where his spirit is, there's nothing more that we need. Well, we praise him because there is a great hope and glory yet ahead of us. I I, I don't know for each of us what our race is going to hold, right? We we don't know. Are we going to suffer great things? Are we going to accomplish great things? That's in God's hands. What we can know is if we continue in faith, that he will be with us, that he will bless us in more ways than we count, and he will be glorified, and we'll be able to be with him as a spiritual family forever. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled before you so grateful for the depth of your grace and mercy. Lord, you have been good to us in more ways than we can count. You have 
brought us through so many valleys and lonely caves. You have uh, at times brought us to, to great mountaintop moments. Lord, help us not to forget all that you have done. Not only in our lives, in our limited vantage point, but Lord, throughout history, all that you have done, all the ways you have shown your goodness, your faithfulness, Lord, help us to cultivate grateful hearts. Help us to stop running our discouragements through our minds again and again. Um, Help us to drive out those negative thoughts by meditating on your goodness, on all that you have given, on drawing close to you, taking strength through your spirit, and help us to work, help us to build, help us to stop building our own houses, um, putting off the day of building your temple. Help us have a mind to work, that we might put first things first, that we might give you the glory and honor that you deserve. And Lord, whether we see the fruit of that, we trust that you are working. Even when we see no fire, no earthquake, no whirlwind, We know that you are at work in the hearts of men and women. May you be praised. May you be glorified through our lives. Please, Lord, help uh, this spiritual family to continue to thrive and to grow for your glory in ways that bring joy to your eyes and to your heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're in some way convicted today um, that you have not been um, surrendering your life fully to the Lord, that there's some part of your life that, that uh, you have, have been allowing the flesh to lead you instead of God's Spirit, and you need to make that right, won't you do that by God's grace today? If, if we can help you uh, in your relationship with the Lord, return to Him, won't you let us do that? That, that, that's what God designed this body to do, what he designed this body to be. And if you recognize that you're not part of the family of the Lord, that you don't have that hope um, because you haven't given your life to the Lord to begin with, by God's grace, you can surrender your life to Jesus. Um, make him the, the Lord of your life. He is Lord. Will, will you submit to him as your Lord? You can bury your old life in the waters of baptism, and by God's grace, you can be cleansed. You can raise out of those waters to a new life, to live with His Spirit within you, and to have a hope of eternity in His presence someday. If there's some change that you need to make, uh, won't you change it now? If we can help you in that, please come forward as we stand.